Welcome to Because It Is, a conversation about faith, justice, and other things that matter. This podcast is hosted by Second Baptist Downtown in Little Rock, Arkansas. Second Baptist is a vibrant, historic downtown congregation whose faith compels us to seek justice, care for the oppressed, and pattern our lives after the way of Jesus. We are a unique Baptist church that prioritizes diversity and inclusion for all. In this episode, we talk with Reagan Sutterfield, an associate rector at Christ Church in Little Rock. We discuss our place in creation, reorienting ourselves as part of creation, not proprietors over, but priests within. As Earth Day approaches, we hope this episode will lead you to think deeply about your role within God's good world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Because It Is. I'm so very excited today to sit down with my friend Reagan Sutterfield. Uh, our churches are sister churches in downtown Little Rock, and uh, Reagan and I have been friends for years. I found him to be a person of great wisdom, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the way that our faith influences the way that we care for creation and live and move and have our being within creation. So, uh, Reagan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're grateful for you and your work and the church you serve. Well, thanks, President. It's so good to be with you. Yeah. I, I wonder if we could start today by you just talking some about your own faith journey in terms of caring for creation. And and maybe those times in your life where dots really connected as to our role in, as creatures caring for creation. Sure. So I grew up in a fairly evangelical faith tradition, Bible church type churches growing up. And I think it, you know, we received so many messages both from church and home and, and sometimes those didn't all come together in a coherent way. Mm -hmm. And at home, I had a was instilled with a great love for the outdoors, the natural world, and a certain kind of reverence for creation. My my father's uh, loves trees, and so it was. We were always taught that to cut down a tree was something that you had to take very seriously and only do when absolutely necessary, and would always comment on you know seeing forest chopped down and and that that being a kind of desecration for for him and he was also a, a great lover of the buffalo river and i think the buffalo for me was was almost my first experience of a sacred place mm. and i think a lot of people in arkansas share that and but it was this this place that we went with this kind of reverence mm. but at the same time a lot of the think things that I just kind of picked up from the Christian culture I was in churches and Sunday school and the way that people talked there, there was a, a sense that creation was sort of just background for human lives. And um, I, I, I've come to think of it in kind of a terrarium model of creation. I had a, a terrarium growing up and had a little, turtle named Sheldon. And, um, you know, I liked to create this little habitat for Sheldon and all of these little rocks and sand and things that would be a good place for Sheldon to live. But the, the thing that was really mattered was this turtle that I was taking care of. And 
I felt in some similar way that that was how creation was for us, that God had created this beautiful, wonderful place for human beings to enjoy until the earth just disappeared and we would go to live with God, wherever that might be. And, and all of this would, would go away just like a, a change of, of a terrarium. Mm. And so I, I think that was in some way in conflict with this sense of sacredness that I was also picking up on with the Buffalo river and with trees. And so it was kind of those two ideas that developed over time. And, and I think I was first able to really begin articulating a different vision um, more consciously when I started to read the, the work of Wendell Berry. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Wendell Berry shaped my faith a great deal as well, uh, for sure. You, you talked about sacred space. Um, you know, when I hear those words, and I think when so many people hear those words, we think sanctuary of a, of a church, right? That that is sacred space, and it is. We, we need those spaces. But those are also reminders that all space is sacred. And, and how often do we think about creation and outdoors as sacred space? Do you have any thoughts about how we might cultivate that mindset? um, as, as people of faith. So there's, I, I, to go to kind of jump on the, the Wendell Berry theme, I, I think there's a poem of Wendell Berry's it's called how to, how to be a poet. Mm -hmm. And there's this line in there that says, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. And I really love that line because it helps I think articulate for me what what's at issue and it's it's a matter of sacredness and, and desecration and i think for many of us when we saw the conflict at standing standing rock over the keystone xl pipeline part of what i think people moved people particularly about that struggle i mean because there are pipelines going around lots of different places and and so why did that capture people's imagination more than some of the other places and I think part of it was that the the tribes that um, were were leading that protest had a real sense of the sacredness of that land and place, and uh, people understood that. So I think with the the idea of, of of sacredness and and you know kind of picking up from the the Standing Rock example, part of what we don't understand is God's presence in an incarnational way in the world. And the way in which God's being with us, I mean, you know, we, we, we pray oftentimes like, you know, God be with us, you know, let us, but God is already here. And it's something that we, we always have to remember that God's, God's already here and, and God shows up and is present in creation and it's, you know, not identical with creation. That's, you know, that's the kind of pantheistic view, but, but, but God's presence and holiness dwells throughout creation. And that's what makes something sacred. And it's only when we don't respect that, that it then becomes desecrated. And I think our most common way of desecrating that the world is, is just, that lack of recognition of, of the holy 
And one way that I think we can help, because you ask about how do we cultivate that sense, I think a sense of affection for the world um, is, is part of it. And, you know, we, we tend to defend and care for and even recognize the holy in what we love. And, you know, if you have someone that, that you care for a child or a, um, a family member or a friend, it's affection that, that drives our the sense of the holiness of that person. And also helps us desire the wholeness of that person that those words holy and whole are, of course, related. Right. And so I think the more that we can cultivate a love for particular places and creatures, the more we'll be able to recognize and honor the, the sacred there. Yeah. So let's let's park there just for a second. So as we think about the relatedness of all things and humans as creatures within creation. Uh, oftentimes, I think our affection for creation and our reverence for creation is lost when we forget that we are part of creation. That oftentimes, we, it feels like humans see ourselves as above creation. And sometimes even the creation care language that we use tends to elevate humanity above creation, right? Is that something you've seen? And, and how do you make sense of the human relationship with creation? So much of creation care language is centered around this idea of stewardship. Mm -hmm. And there, there's, a, there's a really wonderful book um, called um, The Fear of Beggars, um, Stewardship and Poverty in Christian Ethics by Kelly Johnson. And I mean, it's a pretty academic book, but it, but reading it really changed how I think about stewardship. And essentially, Kelly Johnson argues that the, the language around stewardship is a pretty recent theological concept. And she thinks there can be a lot of danger in it. And, you know, from colonialism to even you know, there were many people who were using arguments for the enslavement of people in terms of stewardship. Um, you know, John Locke said that it was okay for the English to come and, and take land from the natives because they weren't stewarding it. You know, um, there, and, and that's right at the, Locke was one of the most influential thinkers on the formation of the U.S. Constitution and, and how we, how the English colonial project in America um, kind of came about was was through Locke's thinking, and so so I think that we have to be really careful about about some of that that language. But the Eastern Orthodox have a lot of helpful ways of framing this that I that I think we could learn from. There's a an Eastern Orthodox theologian, John Zizioulis, and He's I, I I don't know the hierarchy of the Eastern Orthodox Church very well, but he he's he's a fairly high-ranking person in that church. But he is a theologian who's written a lot on the nature of communion, and one of his most famous books is called "Being um, and or Being as Communion." Um, and but he he has a short speech, or it's been published as an essay 
called um, proprietors, proprietors or priests of creation. And he challenges this idea of stewardship and says that that language makes us feel like we are the proprietors of creation, that we sort of own it or at least manage it in some way. But really what we're called to be is the priest of creation. And what a priest is supposed to do is not to be in charge or over anyone, but to be the person who gives name to the prayers in community, who um, helps to recognize the sacred and call everyone's attention to it. And, and that's what he thinks is really a proper way of understanding the human role in creation. And Stanley Harawas actually, um, I, I know you, you, you've read a good bit of Harawas, but he, he's another person who uses a similar way that, that uh, language. He says that in the way that Israel helps all of humanity understand who we are, human beings role in creation is to help all of creation sort of understand what it is. But it's not in this in this way where we're just the to use it. And, and, and I get very bothered, you know, a lot of the Episcopal Church, we use the Book of Common Prayer, and a lot of our prayers in relation to creation are for natural resources or the care of resources. Um, and and I think that that's a mistaken way of of thinking about creation. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's think about that for a second. So um, it seems to me that one of the ways that the Enlightenment, you mentioned Locke earlier, and and those of us who inherited the Enlightenment, in in a way, I feel like it turned creation into an it, right? Where we. Humans are the living aspects of creation, but the rest of creation exists as resources for us, as you, as you just said. And the only way we can think of creation is in an instrumental way. But if you pay attention to scripture, there is a life and a vitality in creation. It, it responds to God um, it, and trees clap their hands and uh all sorts of creative elements participate in Bible stories as if they're living, breathing characters. So how might we recover not the itness of creation, but the, the livingness, the, the vibrancy of creation? Yeah, that, that's a good question. There, there's, you know, I, I visited a permaculture farm in Wisconsin a few years ago and the the farmer there had studied the work of David Abrams who's a really interesting thinker he's he's written um, a book called The Spell of the Sensuous and um, a, among a, num a number of other books but he really emphasizes the need to recover the animacy of the world and he he thinks that the world does speak and we need to learn to, to understand that it is speaking and that it's offering language. And, um, you know, and, and he really expands the idea of, of animacy in some interesting ways. And he says, you know, when we read a text, I mean, that's just ink in funny shapes on a page like that, but, but we think it's speaking to us. And, and he said in the same way, many traditional cultures around the world, 
understand the world is speaking in some similar ways. And so, um, so this, this particular farmer, he would, he knew that I was a bird watcher and he wanted to know what some of the birds were around, around his farm. And, and, um, and he would, he would say, who is she? <laughs> who is he? <laughs> um, and, and he would, he would use this more personal language to, rather than saying, what is it? Um, and, and I think that that is a really helpful way to begin to, to change our perception because we know that language changes our perception of the world. And so, so using more personal language, when we think about the, the created world, and, and I think that that's just going back to some of the, as you said, the biblical narrative, because the, the earth is an agent, um, I was just doing some interesting study on Genesis four, the, the Cain and Abel story and the way in which the earth is the one that, you know, accuses um, Cain <laughs> to, to God. And, um, and, and there's this really great um, biblical scholar, uh, Mari Jorstadt that does this whole analysis of the, of the agency of the earth and the Cain and Abel story. And that, that it, the earth is not on the side of human beings in that, in that story that the earth is actually helping is in co cooperation with God and working for the, for justice in, in that situation. Mm. And, and you could make a similar argument in Exodus with the plagues, you know, this uh, unjust society uh, almost results in a revulsion of creation, right? That, creation itself is is repulsed by what's happening and likewise the reverse of that is when the people of israel return from exile in babylon uh, isaiah speaks of creation making way you know and so creation does seem like a character it, it it doesn't seem like it is a character in these biblical narratives and we would do well to recover that it seems yes um, and Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and and um, one of the other kind of lines of thinking that I, I love, and this is a, a movement called Watershed Discipleship that Chad Myers has helped to kind of foster and 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 edited a, a volume of of essays called Watershed Discipleship. But in his introductory essay for that book, he he points out that you know that the first altar to to God is you know, instructed to be a, an altar made of unhewn stone. Um, so it's, there, there's a, there's a way in which there's this God in many ways prefers what's already given in creation. Mm -hmm. And, and there, and then there's some, some really interesting, you know, going back to the Cain and Abel story. And, and I know you're, you're someone who's interested in thinking about the city and, and how the, the church lives in, um, cooperates in the city, but um, I've just started into a book by um, the the French sociologist uh, Jacques Allol on the meaning of the city, um, and 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 he points out that you know the the first city is founded by Cain, <laughs> and that there there is some biblical commentary on the city, and um, he has he says that Christians don't Christians don't build cities. But they do help redeem them, <laughs> and um, and and I, I like that. And I, but I think that that's a really important 
thing to think about in terms of creation care, because the city has for so long been a place of violence toward creation. Yeah. And let's, let's think about that for a second. Um, you know, I grew up in Eastern Arkansas. My, my parents are, are farmers. My grandparents were farmers. Um, Oftentimes, I think people who live in urban settings look at people who live in rural settings as existing to put food on the table in urban settings, right? Like the, the rural places exist to buttress up urban settings. And um, there tends to be a sort of condescension urban to rural. Uh, and yet so much of the biblical narrative, again, we're I feel like we're preaching a sermon today, but so many of Jesus' parables in the first century life was uh, rural analogies to the kingdom of God, right? So how might we help people who live in a city, uh, who are urban at the core, um, understand the value of rural places and the creation therein? Well, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I don't like a lot of the prayers that we have in, in my tradition for creation just in terms of natural resources. Right. But there, there's one prayer that says the praise for the right use of creation. Mm -hmm. And at first I was like, mm, I don't know about that. But, but then um, in reflecting on it, I think that the reality is that we do use creation. Um, all of us are involved in some way or another with the use of the world. And what we need to care about is the right and just use of the world versus the exploitation and extraction um, economies that, that are used in a way that doesn't replenish the earth. And so I think that those of us who are in urban settings are disconnected in many ways from the sources of that, the beginning places of that use. So um, just to take gardening, for example, a lot of people, springtime, Earth Day's around the corner, a lot of people want, are wanting to go put in gardens. And you can go down to many of the big box stores and get a load of topsoil. Well, I, I knew a, a farmer in rural Conway County who once said, you know, I can make more money selling my dirt than I can any of the crops that I can grow out of it. He could, because he lived in a nice river bottom that had a lot of topsoil. And so he was literally selling his soil. And he was, he was in that situation because of an economy of extraction and exploitation that had made it so... Um, he, he, just, he was not able to make a profit actually growing crops out of that land, but he, and he was then selling the dirt, but he, and, and you don't sell the dirt unless you don't have any hope for the future because that was going to be it, but he didn't have children that were running to farm and he didn't, you know, he, that, that was the, the kind of just survival mode for him. And so, so I think learning to really think about where everything that we interact with comes from, um, you know, if you're getting sand, um, a bag of sand, that sand was mined from someplace. You get a bag of topsoil, that topsoil was mined from someplace. And so how do we properly care for and use the, the world 
Um, but there, there, there's an alternative mode and that, that is to actually cultivate life in such a way that we are participating in the cycles of renewal. Yeah. And that's, that's where we have a, a different mode of use of the world where we can, um, first of all, live with what um, Sir Albert Howard, one of the great soil scientists, pioneering soil scientists of the last century said um, that mother nature has a law of return and that we have violated it. And so the law of return is that if you take something out, you need to put something back in. And so what do we do with our kitchen scraps? What do we do with our coffee grounds? Um, I think compost is one of the great, both metaphors and actual ways to help um, with the, the care of the earth. Because when we take what would be waste and we turn that then into something that actually enlivens the earth and feeds the soil, then, then we're participating in a different kind of economy. And I think that those of us who are in urban settings actually are almost in a, at an advantage for doing something like building compost because we have so much, you know, food scraps and um, beer mash from breweries and leaves that people put out on the curbs and all that stuff could be used to build good soil. And, um, and that actually could create, a, um, I'm not much for like calculating, you know, carbon sinks and things because i think that can get into a, some some wrong ways of thinking but i but i but as far as a place for carbon that's in in the atmosphere now to go um i do think that the soil is is one place that that could go but it has to be soil that's living and and we make that by building compost yeah so I want to finish with some more practical steps, but sure. before we get there, um, let's talk more of just our posture as humans. You know, oftentimes when I preach on creation care, uh, someone will say, so what do I do? And, and I know there's a place for that, but it seems to me that to get to practical steps before we talk about just postures of life uh, misses something crucial. I've heard you today use the term reverence more than once, and so that's surely part of our posture, and even uh, an affection, uh, a love for creation, where we're relating to creation uh, as a subject and not just an object. Uh, other than reverence and love, what should be a part of our general posture uh, as followers of Jesus and people of God in this world? I've been really struck, and, and, and this doesn't come from me, but it, it's been a, an idea that I've been pondering for a long time from, um, I think I first encountered it from Norman Wiersbe, or Wiersbe um, who wrote this, this great book called the, um, the Paradise of God, and I think it's subtitled Renewing Religion in an Ecological Age. And he introduces this idea uh, that to be a human being is to be close to the earth. That, that is literally what a human being is, that we, we are humus beings. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the etymology. And, it, and we share that with Hebrew because the Adam 
the is not just Adam, you know, in the in the story of Genesis two, but but is the um, is the human being that is created from the Adama, and so I think that the tradition that we have in our posture that that comes from the Christian tradition and is really pretty unique to the Christian tradition. Uh, I'm mean, not unique to it, but, but it has deep roots in the Christian tradition and, and was not certainly was not a part of the world of the, of the new Testament outside of it um, is the the idea of humility. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the Greeks and Romans did not have a concept of humility, at least as a, in a positive sense. Um, it was, it was, they, they, they saw where pride might lead in in some senses, but to, to actually go down and to be lower than you might be was was not a, a concept that they had. But but I think that that I mean that is the call of the Christian faith as we follow Jesus who humbled himself. Um, in the Old Testament, the word for you know humility is. Um, related to the word for the lowly, the, the Anawim. Um, and, you know, it says that in one, one verse in um, the Pentateuch, it says that Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. And, um, and that it's that word Anawim, the, the lowly. And so to be in solidarity with those who are towards the bottom, um, and to be in solidarity with creation, that that is all a part of being humble. And to go along with that, there's a um, I've been reading some some of the the great Christian writers on humility, um, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux and um, Saint Saint Benedict and his his role for his his monks. He he emphasizes humility a great deal. And it's all often tied to obedience. And we even see that in the great Kenosis hymn in Philippians 2, humility and obedience are tied together. But what one thing I recently found um, is I, I had not realized that the word for obedience in, in Greek is also the word to pay attention and um, to, you know, it's, to be attentive, to listen carefully. That's what obedience is um, in, in the Greek. And, and I think that's a posture that we, we would do well to take on, to, to really pay attention to the world, to, to marvel at it, to, to listen to it um, and, and listen to, to what it wants. That, that's one of the things that um, some of the, the types of farmers that I, I like um, to, to read are, are always emphasizing, you know, ask, what does your farm want? Like, what, what is the, what's the soil asking for? What's, what are your animals asking for? What, and, and what is the, the wild um, around the farm asking for? And I think that, that, so humility and attentive obedience, I, I think are really important postures that we, we should take. Yeah. Such a great word. Uh, so let's finish on a more practical note, uh, because people would be angry. Our listeners would revolt if uh, we had no practical steps. So um, 
this conversation has existed mostly at a philosophical level, and that's that's great, and that's a good place to to start. Uh, how does this play out in our lives? Can you think of some practical ways that our listeners, most of whom live in an urban setting, can um, participate in the renewal of the earth? Yes. Yeah, so um, this is something I really like to to think about, and so I would say the first thing to do would be to there's a there's a book out by a guy named Douglas Tallamy that's that's called Nature's Best Hope and it's it's a subtitled a new conserve new approach to conservation that starts in your yard and it doesn't matter if you have a large space or a small space but whatever whatever you have available to you starting to work to cultivate micro refuges for creation start right right where you are so he emphasizes the need and importance of native plants he's an entomologist and he shows how lots of insects depend on very specific species of plants to complete their life cycles and then that goes up to birds and and other creatures that then feed on those insects and so you you, you may not think um i i the, the best thing i can do is to create more habitat for bugs in my yard but uh <laughs> but as he as he uh shows that most insects are not are not a uh, even a nuisance to human beings we we mostly just don't notice them <laughs> but uh but they're they're really important to to wildlife, especially birds. And so, so we can start by, you know, if you have an oak tree, if you plant an oak tree in your yard, that can be um, doing a great deal on many different levels, not only in the carbon that it's capturing, but, but also in the sense of the, the habitat that it's providing for insects and the food that it's providing for, for birds through, through that. So, so I highly recommend nature's best hope and working to develop a, an ecosystem in your in your yard as, as best you can that and that's something that the audubon society has a lot of resources for and there's actually a native plant cell going on for um arkansas audubon but you can go to um arkansas audubon's website and find a lot of resources and they also have a bird friendly yard a different organization there's arkansas audubon and then there's um audubon arkansas and and the um and so it's actually audubon arkansas that has the um the bird that's part of the national organization and then arkansas audubon is a state organization and they have um a bird friendly yard certification that can guide you through some of the things you can do to create habitat and what's good for birds is good for most other things and they're just now starting a bird friendly church initiative so you can actually become a bird friendly church and that's you know taking care of things like your landscaping but also paying attention to windows that might kill birds um getting bird friendly coffee is a is a huge thing um cuz so i could go on and on about all of that but um any, anyone can follow up with me and i'd be glad to provide some more information on on those things and then um uh, you know there, there's there's so much else to do but i i think finding a place and loving it 
and going to it on a regular basis can can be a tremendous practical step. Um, I, I think we we think about enjoying things as not being practical, but the more you love a place and the more you love the creatures that are a part of it, um, and and come to understand those creatures then you're going to become more aware of what their needs are. It was my development of a love for birds that has helped me understand um, creation in many different aspects, and, but, but also then to, to learn to care for what, what birds need. And so that, that I think is, is a tremendous practical step that I'd, I'd recommend. All great thoughts. Um, and we will include Reagan's information in the show notes. So uh, if you'd like to contact Reagan and further explore any of the things we've talked about today, um, that would be the best way to do so. Uh, Reagan, we're most appreciative of your time and your expertise in this regard. And I think uh, you're leading so many of us in thinking more deeply about how to uh, be creatures in God's good creation. And so thank you for your work and your wisdom in that regard. Um, this week is Earth Day, and we posted this episode in the hopes that uh, this conversation would prompt all of us to think about how our discipleship uh, is not something separate from how we live and move and have our being in creation, and that how we care for and how we live within creation is part of how we love the God who made all things. So um, prayerfully today, consider this conversation and uh, let us all be uh, not just good stewards of creation, as we've talked about, but good lovers of creation. As you go, go and love God with all your heart, and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself do so as if it's the most important thing in all the world because it is thank you for listening to because it is these are just some of the things that matter to us at second baptist church downtown if you enjoyed this conversation please visit us online at 2bclr.com that's the number two bclr.com and like us on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Brittany Stilwell and edited by Randy Schoenig with Fresh Air Media.